Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. In this episode, I speak with Will Nitz, founder and CEO of IQ Bar, the leading brain and body plant-based protein bar. Will talks about his journey from attending Harvard to entering the world of software sales and then pivoting to launching his own protein bar. He shares his experience of coming up with the idea of 4IQ Bar and then leveraging Kickstarter for market research and gaining some initial traction. He also talks about its distribution strategy around D2C, retail, and Amazon. Will is an open book with some really solid wisdom. He's picked up through years of direct experience in the trenches. He really brought it for this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Will, how are we doing? We're doing well. How are you? Hey, good. Hey, thanks for, for jumping on uh, with me today. Um, I'm excited to hear about your, your company and uh, just learn a little bit about uh, a little bit more about you. The way we like to kick this off, though, is with a quote. Do you have uh, one that comes to mind that's been impactful to you? I do. I do. And this is I don't know who originally said this, but I know this is attributed to Kevin Durant, at least. So the quote is hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard, which is kind of a a little bit cliched, but but something I genuinely believe. Yeah, yeah, totally agreed. And and what I actually think is interesting about that is that people look at Kevin Durant and just think that he's just he was born talented. You know, he's just you know he's so tall and he's so good. But yeah, you know, when you look behind the scenes, these guys work their butts off in order to get where they are. Yeah, and there's and even even just like within basketball too, there's so many cases of people who are not who are just like workhorses, like they're like. Not necessarily. There's the LeBron Jameses who are just physically gifted. And then there's like the Paul Pierces who are like, there's nothing physically that would suggest that guy's an all-star. And yet he is because he just works so damn hard. Right, right. Well, I, I like the way this interview is going because I'm a huge fan of the NBA. So that's a, that's a good <laughs> start. <laughs> well, um, why don't you uh, start off by telling us just a little bit about yourself, Will? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I live in Boston, uh, grew up in Jersey, went to college in, uh, in greater Boston, um, 30 years old. I, um, I'll start at college. So I, I, in college, I studied psychology and neuroscience as well as, uh, government, 
kind of a random combo, but I got really interested in, in the brain, all things, the human brain, um, both from a psychological standpoint and a neuro, uh, biological standpoint or physiological standpoint. And, uh, that was when I developed a real passion for, for that. I then graduated, I worked in software, selling software to oil and gas companies, which is, has nothing to do with the brain, but, um, was sort of a default, I didn't really know what I wanted to do out of college and I couldn't figure out a way to turn that interest and passion into a job. And so I did that for about three, three and change years. And while I was doing that, I developed this concept for, for at the time brain food and um, which would later become the company I now run. Um, and I can get into that whole origin story, but, uh, but yeah, fast forward uh, a few more years and we're, you know, a, a nine person team or in thousands of locations across the U S made massive e-commerce presence. And, um, yeah, that's the long and short of it. That's awesome. Just, uh, for a little bit more context, uh, are you married? Do you have kids or any of that? I am not married, although I'm engaged and I will be married, uh, new year's Eve of this year. Very nice. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. No kids yet. Um, I don't think I, my lifestyle would work with kids today. Um, but I'm trying to sort of plan it out such that I'm living less of a chaotic lifestyle by the time I, I want to have kids. Nice. And you're uh, still out in the Boston area. Is that where you guys are? Yep. Yeah. South Boston. Cool. Well, okay. So, so you didn't mention it, but, uh, this, the school in greater Boston that you, that you went to was Harvard. Um, and I wanted to get into just a little bit about your motivation behind your, the degree, you know, it sounds like you've always been interested in the brain. Um, uh, but, but when it, what will actually went into your choice of, of, uh, you know, what you studied and especially also the, the government angle on there. Yeah. The government piece is not that interesting. It's sort of like every college I, I think has some major where like everything qualifies for it. So it allows you to take a really wide breadth of courses for Harvard. That's government. Um, so if you basically, if you don't know what you want to do with your life, you take do government. Um, or if you really want to go into, you know, politics, I guess you do government too. But um, did you have any interest in that at all? No, okay. yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. not at all, but it's cool. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, um, you know, how different societies are run and what works and what doesn't from a macro political and macroeconomic standpoint. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly interested in all those things. It's just, but I would be lying to tell you that it wasn't really just picked because it allowed me to take a ton of different courses and figure it out. So that cool. was, um, that was that piece, but I just really stumbled into the psychological or psychology piece. Um, I took a class called SLS 20 science of living systems 20, which is the intro psychology course at Harvard. And it's taught by these actually very famous people. Uh, Steven Pinker is one of the guys who teaches the class. This other guy, Dan Gilbert's also pretty, pretty famous. Mm -hmm. So it was cool just to like get taught by these really well-known people who have, you know, written really well-known works. Um, but they're actually really hard and a lot of people struggle with them. Um, that course in particular and how I knew I was really interested in the topic was I like loved it. I found it to be hard, but I actually was like excited to go to class, which 
pretty, I, I didn't get that sensation with any other class at Harvard, honestly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so I was, it was both hard and exciting, which is, I think how, you know, you really like a discipline. So, and then I would just take, take every class in that, in that discipline I could both, again, both from a psychological standpoint and a, um, physiological standpoint. So everything down to study of the brain, uh, as a biological you know, organ. Um, and I loved all of it. I was just, I was just fascinated with all of it. And, but I couldn't really, I was also super into business and like, you can't study. The joke is like, there's nothing, you can't learn anything practical at Harvard or you can, if you're in like computer science or engineering, but like beyond that, you're not going to learn any, you're not going to get really good at Excel, for example, and, and PowerPoint and all these like core skills that if you go into any business, you, you really need to be excellent at, you, you don't learn any of that at, at, at Harvard. Um, hence the sort of liberal arts bent to it. But um, sure, sure. I was also really interested in business. And so I wasn't like, I knew I wanted to do some cross section of business and something. And there really is no obvious cross section of business and the brain or psychology or, or neurobiology. Um, so I couldn't really, it just doesn't really map as cleanly to a profession as like engineering or computer science or pre-med or pre-law does. So that was why I struggled to, with what I was going to do after college. And, um, you know, it's interesting psychology, um, and for a lot of careers actually ends up being a pretty good, a pretty good discipline to try to understand people and, you know, the way that we, we work and how complicated people are and what motivates people, you know, and I, and I, and I think it actually, you know, it's something that's a little bit more common than I think a lot of people realize, um, that, that, that's actually a, a, a good degree for a lot of people who end up in business. Yeah. I think it's a good degree for anyone who wants to do anything, you know, it's like, why do people like understanding why people do the things they do is, I mean, it's helpful for you, like your personal life. It's helpful right. for everything. Um, like I always recommend this one book by this guy, Robert Cialdini, um, called influence. And it's super bad. You can read it in like three hours. It's super short, super basic, which is actually why I like one of the reasons I like it. Cause most, you know, for example, business books are 10 times too long, but it's very basic. And he basically just like lays out what are the things that influence anyone to do anything. So like, for example, um, uh, appeal to authority, right? Like, and an example he would give would be like, someone plays a doctor on TV. Like, let's say uh, Dr. House of the show House, if you've ever seen that. Right, yeah. You would, like many people would trust that guy to give them medical advice even though they know he's playing a doctor. So it's, it's like even the perception, even several degrees removed, that appeal to authority, he's wearing a lab coat, he's sounding smart, is signaling in her brain like this person is trustworthy. So like, and then what are the applications that? Well, like be an authority in whatever you're doing, like give cues that you are an authority in every one, you know, in your messaging and yada, yada, yada. So it's just, I found it, to be extremely helpful and just basic everyday decisions of how to frame things. Yeah. I think influence is a great book um, and it is a must read. We'll make sure to, to link to that in, in the show notes. Um, and this conversation, you know, although it sounds like we're, you know, we're talking about psychology um, it actually um, applies to, to, 
you know, to you eventually, you know, founding this, this, this company. Um, before though, we, we, we talk about the founding story. Um, I wanted to hear just a little bit about uh, your work with, uh, with Power Advocate. It sounds like you were in, in software sales. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, uh, I guess you could call it a startup. It was, I want to say 20, 120 people when I was there. So it's kind of like just out of startup phase. And basically what I was doing was I was hot. This was in 2014 when oil and gas was like booming. We mm-hmm. were just, had just become like an, you know, America was energy independent. We didn't rely on foreign oil, yada, yada, yada. So it was just very exciting, which of course, fast forward to today, to today. And it's like the least sexy thing you could possibly be doing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but at the time it was incredibly exciting. And I, I have, inherently no interest in oil and gas. I, um, it was just sort of like, okay, here's some like booming market. And then also SaaS at the time, software as a service was booming. So like Salesforce was going bonkers and like, it was like redefining how everyone models software businesses from a business context. And so this company really set up the intersection of those two things. It was a SaaS product or series of SaaS products selling into these companies that were like printing money basically. So just kind of an interesting opportunity. And I was, and, and even more important than any of those dynamics, there's a really smart group of people, sort of a internal SWAT team uh, per se uh, um, that I was being hired into of these like ex management consultants who were tasked with building this, you know, building this component of the business. So that was why I did it. Um, Happy to talk about my my experience as well. Yeah, yeah, and and I and I think it's it's actually more applicable, you know, than than people would realize, and just just getting some actual sales experience. Um, you know, I did something similar in in my career as well. Um, I actually went for a summer and I sold security systems door to door in Houston, and uh, it turns out that was just a fantastic um, experience. Uh, to kind of set me up to later start a company, um, because it turns out as you, as an entrepreneur, all you're doing is selling all the time. You know, selling your employees, selling you know your investors, selling customers, um, and so sales is just a, a core skill. Is that something that you would agree with? It, it is, and I would say there's this other. I, maybe I should have said this as my quote, but it's not really. It doesn't map well to an you know eloquent language, but basically. The message is, and this is a former coworker of mine told me this, and I just, I believe it to be true. Your first job, you should either be building something or selling something. Hmm. It's like if you either build something, learn to build something or learn to sell something. That should be your first job. And I was like, damn, that's so true because like ultimately those skills pervade everything. Um, and, you know, for me, I wasn't right out the gate going to kind of learn to build something. So I, I learned to sell something and it is, it does pervade everything. Like I just watched the WeWork documentary on Hulu and that entire thing is a case study in how good a salesman Adam Newman is, the guy who started WeWork or co-founded right. WeWork. And, and to your point, he sold everyone. He sold employees, he sold investors, he sold people desks, you know, our, our time at desks. And 
the whole thing was sales. Like nothing was actually at its core innovative. It was just really well packaged and sold. And so, yeah, I agree. I think it's a, everyone needs to learn how to sell. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so let's, let's jump, uh, let's jump into, you know, sort of your transition uh, from selling software um, to starting to think about, you know, what, what would become IQ bar, like what, what was going through your head at the time? Well, uh, I was having sort of an existential moment where I was thinking, what do I want to do with my career? Which I think, I don't know. I think it hits people at different points or just never hits people, I guess. I don't know. I can't speak for other people, but you know, a couple of years in, I was like, eh, do I want to like the company's growing? I'm doing well. Um, I'm getting better at my job, but like, I'm not, my fulfillment level is not going up over time. And I don't, first of all, I'm not inherently interested per se in, in oil and gas. Um, I'm really not interested in software either. Um, I'm interested in selling those things. I'm interested in how do you build a good team and like all the supporting dynamics around what I was doing, but the actual thing I was selling and the, it just wasn't, I wasn't like fascinated by it. Um, and so it was kind of like, okay, do I, you know, is this what, am I going to do this for 30 years um, and sort of climb a corporate ladder and and for a little while I thought yes maybe um but I always had this sort of itching desire to uh to do my own thing and I just didn't know what that was I, I knew that I wanted to be able to own it from tip to tail like be able to conceive of the idea actually build the thing mm-hmm. and then b- build the company around the thing and it was going to be a thing it wasn't going to be a a technology or uh, or some intangible entity it was always going to be a thing a cpg product i just didn't know what it was and so i was kind of waiting to be inspired by that while also seeking out seeking out things and so at first i had this concept of called native beverages and really what got me what kicked off this and which accelerated my interest in doing my own thing and, and doing a tangible thing so I read this book called Mission in a Bottle by Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff, the guys who founded uh, Honest Tea. Uh-huh. And it was it's a really interesting book. It's actually written in graphic novel form. Um, interesting. I believe because Seth Goldman's son is dyslexic. I think that's why he did it. But it's, it's really, it's a cool reading experience because it's you're reading a comic book, but it's a business book. And I, it just like fascinated me. And I was for whatever reason, really relatable to this guy. I think he also went to Harvard and studied government um, and got a consulting gig out of college and wasn't that fulfilled by it. So there's just so many parallels. And I, I was like, I, I really relate to this guy. I want to do what he did. And I actually reached out to him and I met him. He was like, Hey, you want to come hear me talk? And I drove, I rented a car and drove up to New Hampshire and met him. Interesting. Yeah, I knew he was in the in the Northeast there, and I've also heard him speak before, and and I, I think he's great. You know, um, very articulate, very you know um, precise in in his language and ideas. And anyway, I just think he's a great thinker. It, totally, and I and I, I was like, okay, I'm going to start a beverage company like this guy. That mm-hmm. was like my thinking, and I was going to start a company called Native Beverages, and the basic concept being. <clears throat> things like a, an Indian lassi, which is like a, like a yogurt drink and 
uh, a Thai iced tea. And there are all these cool ethnic beverages that I love, but aren't really mass market in America. Um, and so I was, that was what, that was the concept, native beverages. And, you know, there's going to be an American beverage, sweet tea, and there's going to be a Thai beverage, Thai iced tea, and there's going to be an Indian beverage, Indian lassi, and there's going to be a Peruvian beverage. Um, so <clears throat> anyway, I, I don't remember why that fizzled out, but that idea fizzled out. And then I was going to do a gender specific drink, like men and women need subtly different nutritional profiles. Women need more choline than men and things like that. And so it's going to be like, kind of like Luna bar is geared towards women. Right. Um, so that was another idea. And then that kind of fizzled out for, again, I'm not sure why, but I got the, then I had this concept of brain food and that was what really stuck. Um, uh, because I read a book called all these things happen because I read books and get excited about things. So I read a book mm -hmm. called grain brain by David Perlmutter. Yeah, that's good. Book and, too. uh, I got uh, that one just like knocked my socks off, like blew me away. And I was like, Whoa, like, this is crazy. Everyone's brain is on fire and they don't know it. And, um, and again, it, it, I, I was super interested in the brain. And so it of course dovetailed with my interests too. And so that like clicked more than everything else. And so I, I was like, okay, what exists out there from a brain food standpoint? And, and there's really nothing. Um, so that was, that was it. I was like, okay, I'm going to, try and create this brain food and, and i was so i just started messing around in my spare time and my nights and weekends and you know mixing stuff in bowls and um i made a massive spreadsheet and i looked at i said okay what are all the nutrients that are have been shown to be good for the brain for xyz reason so like vitamin e flavonoids um resveratrol all these like esoteric compounds and then I would just like find suppliers of them and order them to my apartment and like mix it in, in a bowl. Like it was super chaotic, disorganized and all that from the get go. And, um, none of it with an eye towards like unit economics and things like that. And then, you know, a thousand iterations later, once I had figured out like you can't put curcumin in a bowl and have an orange bar that anyone wants to buy, that's going to cost <laughs> $7. Right. Um, you know, had a prototype and, um, and, and at that point I, I walked into my boss's office and I said, I look at, I, he already known I wanted to do my own thing. And I said, what could I work half time? Can you cut my salary in half and, and have me work half time? And he's like, let me think about it. And then a day later, a couple of days later, he said, yeah, I, I'm okay with that, which is cool. Um, so I did that and then I had way more time. And so I started building out this crowdfunding uh, campaign and then ran that went really well. And actually, excuse me, I quit my job right before that ran that went well and I was off to the races. Did you guys go with Kickstarter? Yes. Yeah. 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 And what's, and what's well, how did, how did you, how did you guys do on there? Well, we had never sold $1 of product and we sold, between Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which you kind of, you just shift your campaign over to Indiegogo afterwards and you get all the like uh, spillover cash. Um, uh -huh. Between those two, we did $90,000 in sales in two months. 
Yeah, and I, and I say that because I, I think a lot of people think that um, in order for those you know crowdfunding campaigns to be successful, you have to raise millions of dollars or something. Uh, a lot of times, it's just the initial traction that you need to get off the ground. Oh yeah, I mean, first of all, you're not going to raise like no one raised the people who raise that much are funding the project with hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there's never just a thing that like the idea is so insanely compelling that you're going to do that. Yeah. I mean, for us, I mean, we would have been stoked about $50,000. You're just trying to prove your concept. I think it's actually the wrong way to look at it of like, I'm going to get the capital needed to start this business. Like that's capital is like not, doing anything for you. Like you're going to need way more than that. It's way more of a proof of concept and sales generation. I mean, those are real sales. Those are people paying for a product. So you can take those and prorate those and build a story around, around a value of your company based on that. Whereas if you don't do that, you're just pitching a slide deck and try and, and saying you're worth X amount of money and have zero sales to back that up. And certainly people do that. It doesn't really work well in, in my experience in food and Bev, it works really well in tech. Um, if you have a good founding team and a really good idea and you have a track record, you can go get a killer valuation and raise a lot of money with a slide deck. You can't do that in food, especially as a first time founder who has zero credibility. So Kickstarter is just a great way to say, hey, you know that idea I told you about? Yeah, we just sold $90,000 of products. Are you interested in investing? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great feedback um, and great advice for people. Um, so uh, I guess we've been just kind of been talking around the idea, but um, IQ Bar, if you had to describe that or, or when you describe that to people, um, what is it and who is it for? Well. Originally, we were formed as, as a bar company, but we're actually emerging as more of a brain and body nutrition company. That would be my like one phrase encapsulation of what we do. Um, that happens to have started in the the bar space. So, mm-hmm. but that for mm-hmm. that particular product line, IQ Bar, which is the the eponymous uh, uh, product line, is is a brain and body protein bars. It's a plant. It's if, if you want to get really buzzwordy wordy about it, it's a keto paleo friendly plant-based protein bar centered around brain nutrients. So um, many people consume the bars because simply because they're low carb, low sugar, and they want a good keto bar. Um, others consume it because they want a plant-based protein bar. Um, others consume it for both reasons. They want a plant-based protein bar that is also low in sugar. Um, and then others consume it because of the differentiation of, of the brain component. It's a brain healthier bar. Um, but you'd be surprised. I mean, pretty much really what drives adoption and sales is nutrition first. And the, the brain differentiation is sort of a rounding element. It's a, it's a nice sort of additional benefit, but Pretty much no one searches brain bars in, in an Amazon search bar. Um, let's search for vegan protein bar. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you, you show up for that. So that's that was actually my next question, which is, um, 
you know, it looks like you've tied into some of these some of these diet dietary trends, you know, keto, paleo, uh, vegan. Um, was that intentional from the beginning? How, how did you guys think about that? Yeah, it was it was super intentional. I mean, the first way I thought about it was it's all as it relates to the brain. So so from a macronutritional standpoint, like if I want to be sharp all day long, what is what macronutrient nutritional profile should my meals and snacks be? And generally speaking, they should be low carb um, because carbs convert to blood glucose, which spikes your insulin, which then makes you tired. <laughs> I mean, that's the classic classic like crash that we uh, we experience when you eat pizza or whatever, some some carb heavy thing. Um, and if you're not doing that and you're consuming mostly protein and fat, and if you're fully keto, you know that's mostly fat. Um, then you're not crashing and you're feeling good and you're thinking more clearly. And so uh, everything really was with, was with an eye towards the brain piece, but it just so happens to also be a really popular diet because it has other benefits or at least the keto diet, um, you know, namely weight loss, namely, um, high energy levels. Um, you know, there's all this other, kind of cool ancillary stuff like it helps with epilepsy and, and things like that. But um, so that was that the, the plant-based thing is, is, you know, generally speaking, everything is just, we can all see the writing on the wall. Like everything is moving towards plant-based everything, including protein. Right. Um, historically whey protein was, was King and that's just not going to be true in five years. So um, everything's moving that way. If you don't do that, you will be not necessarily left behind, but just leaving opportunity on the table, uh, in my opinion. And so, yes, that was very intentional, uh, the plant-based piece. And then the paleo-friendly, and that's really just a synonym for general label cleanliness, is, you know, also, I actually don't fundamentally believe that, like, a quote unquote, there's a lot of sort of pseudoscience around dirty labels and, oh, you had erythritol on your label. And it's like, actually, physiologically, there's, there's not nothing really wrong with consuming erythritol, but people look at it and say, oh, I can't pronounce that word. It's, it's a dirty label word and yada, yada, yada. So, you know, to some degree, you're, you're, um, positioning your brand based on what people just generally perceive to be clean label or not. But you're also, more importantly, actually like centering your products on whole food ingredients um, and ingredients that are processed in, in some way. You're including those for a reason. Like, for example, lecithin, sunflower lecithin. Inherently, that's a processed or somewhat processed thing. You have to extract the lecithin from the sunflower. Cavemen were not creating sunflower lecithin. Um, but it, but it's genuinely healthy. Like it, it converts into choline in your body, which is, um, has all these brain benefits and, and other benefits. And so, you know, there, again, you're, you're always battling like pseudoscience, like what do people care about, um, and want to see, but also more importantly, what's just like generally good, a good label look like. Yeah, I heard a, a salesperson uh, say this years ago, 
and I'm not actually saying that, that you're saying this, but um, you sell them what they want, um, and, but you give them what they need, right? A lot, a lot of times, you know, people, people aren't exactly sure, you know, what it is that, that they actually need. They've got an idea of what they want. And so you have to balance, I think, I think you've got to balance that in any product that you, you put out there. Yeah. And if you, and the, and the cardinal sin of that, of marketing and selling is selling or marketing someone what you think they want or right. what you want them to want, which we were guilty of for, for a while there where we thought people wanted brain food. They actually don't. They want think something that's nutritionally hitting all the check boxes they want. And it's an awesome, nice to have that it's brain healthy. That was a massive learning for us um, because again, you're operating off of things like what are people searching for? What are people looking for? What do they want? Quote unquote. And so if you try and fight against the current, it's just a tough path to take. Um, and it just gets sort of, you know, we, we stopped marketing what we wanted people to want and met people where they're at and then actually delivered what we thought they need. Yeah, so I think that's actually a really powerful point, Will. Um, let's double click on that just a little bit. You said that, you know, it was a mistake that you guys made for, for quite a while. You know, how, how did that, uh, you know, can you land that plane a little bit? What, what type of things were you, were you doing or how was that affecting your sales and, and your, your overall business? Um, and then what, what changed it? What was the motivation and, and how did you learn and, and change? And then what was the impact of that? Yeah. I mean, what's cool about CPG is you just, you get a lot of feedback, like in versus like a B2B setup where you're selling your purview is a hundred massive accounts and selling two accounts is a great year. Like for CPG, you have to sell to thousands and thousands of people, which is annoying in some ways, but great in some ways, like you get so much feedback again, annoying in some ways, but great. Um, and people will just tell you, they'll just be honest with what they want. Um, especially if you really seek it out and you like do surveys. And so we would ask like, what, why did you buy our product? And what would you like our product to like, what's missing from our product? Um, what, what do you wish our product had? And so basically what we figured out, which of course hindsight's twenty twenty, but it is intuitive. I think um, is that, People want, generally speaking, when they're buying a protein bar, they, they, they care about two things, protein and sugar. Like if you're going to boil it down to two things, protein, and by, what I mean by protein is protein quantity of grams, but also like source. Is it plant-based protein? Is it whey protein? Um, and then for, for sugar, it's, it's pretty straightforward how many grams of sugar is in the product. So, and then there, there's some tertiary things that are close seconds, which is carbs, more specifically net carbs, but also total carbs people care about. Um, but, you know, carbs. And then, again, there, you know, probably a, then a close third is like label cleanliness. And, um, but basically, like, all, all of those bundled up is like macro macronutrition. So if you don't have a macronutritional strategy, you're dead in the water. And what we originally came out with was something that was more micronutritionally geared. So um, you know, we have all these cool brain nutrients and omega-3s and flavonoids and this and that. And 
And that's not the first thing someone thinks about when they buy a bar. They think about protein, sugar, et cetera. And so if you just knock it out of the park on those first few things, you can then get the privilege to educate or pitch someone on the secondary things, which is micronutrients. Now, what do I like get more excited about? The micronutrients, but that doesn't, doesn't matter what I get excited about. It matters what people are looking for and care about. So, you know, that affected everything from the product we were making to how we frame it, brand it. What do we put in letters on a Facebook ad? You know, everything. Um, what do people search for? You know, what keywords do we bid on? Yeah, interesting. What about, um, wh- where would you place um, taste or, or flavor in, in that hierarchy of, of what people look, look for? I mean, it's very important. It's very important. Um, there are certain products, I won't name them, but that succeeded in spite of that because they had such good product market fit. Um, but let's just put it this way. Your path will be infinitely easier if it tastes good. Um, your repeat purchase rate will be, because ultimately, like, how do you truly break through? You get a high retention and, and, and actually build a sustainable, you know, cash flow positive business in CPG, which doesn't have incredibly good margins, at least in the bar world, you get a good repeat purchase rate. Like that, it's, it's almost as simple as that. A, a relatively low customer acquisition cost and a high customer LTV, lifetime value, which maps to repeat purchase. Um, so, and sometimes you can even have a high customer acquisition cost, but if your repeat purchase is so good and your LTV is so good as a result, like you will win. So what drives that? I mean, taste is, is a big, big, big one. So you want someone to create, this is why like Quest Nutrition or Halo Top, or they made craveable things. That's kind of a, I like that term craveable, like be more craveable. craveable. Mm-hmm. Like you want someone to crave it and it's a way, like, for example, you crave our, I don't know, I don't know if you do, but I crave coffee in the morning. Like I crave it. Like I need it. Like, there's that physiological response I'm looking for that I associate with euphoric feelings and productivity and blah, blah, blah. So that's why Starbucks trades at 200 times earnings. Like, you know, that that's a drug. So how do you become as craveable as you want? Part of that's taste. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's actually a great description, craveable. Um, let's let's just talk about a little bit uh, your strategy around flavors and you know how you how you came out the gate and how you expanded um, the different bars that you you guys offer. Yeah, this is another another interesting topic that I've uh, tried to educate myself as much as possible on, which is another. Again, I keep now thinking about quotes I would have said in, in your original question, but another one I really, I really believe in is, and I, same to the last one I gave, it's not that eloquent, but don't over innovate. Like don't, in, like you should be copying 90% and innovating 10%. And I think a big mistake is people try to over innovate. So for example, an example of that would be like, you know, let's say Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger said, okay, we're going to create a vegan burger, but it's not even going to be like a burger. We're going to innovate in that it's all plant-based, but we're also going to innovate 
in that it's not going to be juicy like a burger. Like it's not going to excrete oil when you press the buns together. And cause like, there's nothing inherently valuable about that. And you know, that's not good for X, Y, Z reason. So we're going to innovate in, it, in that it's plant-based and not have that. And it's going to be a different texture. That would be over innovating. People don't want, people like there's, there's a reason a zillion burgers get sold a day. People like the experience of eating a burger. So just innovate the 10%, of course, a lot easier said than done, but right. make it plant-based, but copy everything else. 90% copy, 10% innovation. So that's how I think about flavor. It's like people don't get cute. Like don't try and sell like a, you know, Ivory Coast coffee, you know, coffee flavored or cacao flavored, whatever. Like no one's looking. I mean, some people are looking for that, but a tiny, tiny fraction are looking for that relative to chocolate bar or relative to peanut butter bar. Like there are just things people are looking for. And and I find flavor to be something that you should innovate on the least, honestly, like, like people know what they want. They just do. They'll tell you, look at, look at search results. Look at the top selling bars. That's a nice analog of, of what you should be doing is just look at the top selling bars. They're all chocolate and peanut butter, every single one of them. So if you look at the top 100, there's like a few sort of outliers, like, you know, strawberry this or lemon that, but it's all chocolate and peanut butter. So for you to not do that is silly, uh, in my opinion, because they're not look, consumers are not looking for you to innovate on flavor unless that's your central point. Unless you're copying 90% of everything else and your 10% innovation is flavor, okay. Like if that's your thing you're hanging your hat on, we offer like grass flavored whatever and 10% of people are into that. Great, that's your thing. But that has to be your thing. Like for us, we're not a flavor company. We're a brain and body nutrition company. So I'd rather sell you a chocolate bar that you're looking for that is nuanced in this other way than sell you something that's over nuanced. So let's, uh, let's switch gears just a little bit. Um, you know, so you guys launched the Kickstarter. Um, it went well. Uh, you got your first sales on there. You guys did awesome. You'd got 90, $90,000 in sales, I think is what you said. Um, and so obviously you, you probably had your website set up pretty much right away. Um, and so were you doing, um, D to C from, from day one, was that kind of a big part of the strategy? Yeah, for sure. Um, we were always a digital first company and still are today, About 70, I want to say 70% of our 2020 sales were digital. So yeah, so we just rolled the Kickstarter into a website and then rolled that website into an Amazon presence and we're off to the races. And, um, so you know, that, and I wouldn't do it any other way, honestly. Um, I actually wish we had pushed digital further before we started dabbling in brick and mortar. Interesting. How come? Digital is way more forgiving in basically every way. So you turn inventory quicker. Um, so you, you're not worried about like, is this thing going to last nine months on shelf? It doesn't matter. You sold it in two months. Um, whereas if you're selling to, you know, a drugstore, it is going to sit there for nine months. And so you could have some catastrophic thing happen at eight months in. Um, it's more forgiving on cash flow. You get paid up front, whereas 
with brick and mortar, you get paid on terms. It's um, oftentimes higher margin, although sometimes lower margin um, because the fulfillment cost is so high on a per unit basis. Um, but oftentimes it can be higher margin and net net margin. Um, it's you get more learnings, you get more data, um, you get quicker feedback, um, you get act, people actually telling you what they think. Whereas in brick and mortar, it's like someone's probably not probably someone is buying our bars right now in like Oklahoma, and I have no idea what they thought of it. So um, it's kind of better in every way. Um, two way points to a point. So once you hit some certain scale, you brick and mortar is awesome in other ways, like um, volume for one, like you can sell so much product in Costco. It's not even funny um, that you just could not sell on Amazon or whatever, walmart.com. Um, you every shelf presence is a billboard people don't think about the shelf as a billboard it is it's you have a billboard and that billboard is you have to measure against let's say a facebook ad which is just a different type of billboard so you're getting impressions you don't know that you're getting impression or you do know you just don't know who and how often and all that but um but i would always recommend people start with d to c like you don't know who you are as a company, who your customer is, all that. There's still so much stuff to iron out. It takes years to really iron out all your details to get perfect product market fit or something approximating that. And just digital is a lower risk, you know, way to do that. So that's where we started and still today is most of our business. Um, and, but you, you know, we're also fairly large in brick and mortar in Kroger, Sprouts, Wegmans. We're going into Walmart, um, uh, CVS, Rite Aid. So, um, you know, we're in thousands of locations and, and um, it's just, <laughs> it's a different beast. Like it's harder to manage. So you're managing all these different entities, whereas Amazon is one entity, um, different data sets, different terms, commercial terms, different distribution methods. So, I mean, there's a reason people love D2C. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so with, with Amazon, um, seems like a, a you know pretty big channel for you guys. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, just looking at, at your Amazon page, you've got great reviews on here. Looks like um, you've you've had a lot of customers actually review your product and give it great great ratings. Um, how do you guys how do you guys think about about Amazon promoting on Amazon? Amazon, you know, as, as in uh, your connection to your customer through Amazon. What? How do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's it's funny. There's a lot of like armchair experts on this topic. Um, and then there's also some true experts on this topic, which is actually, I think, true for all topics. But everyone always says like, you don't own the customer and um, you don't get the data and you yada, yada, yada. That is true. Um, but that doesn't make the sale less good. Like at some point, really what matters in CPG is revenue. Like your value based on revenue, revenue means dollars in your bank account. Um, and so, 
And also think about your timeline. Like, what is the best, cleanest way to build a D2C business? Probably it is through your website over a very long period of time. You have all the data on everyone. You can interact with them. You can retarget them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's probably the cleanest way. But that'll take you 20 years. Um, and the, you cannot ignore Amazon. Half of everything that gets sold online is sold on Amazon. To, to not have an Amazon strategy in CPG is, in my opinion, a mistake. Um, I would say there's a, there's a, there are exceptions to that. So if you, if you sell, if you're Nike, right? Nike kind of famously pulled out of Amazon, which is a big deal. I think it was like six months ago. Mm-hmm. If you're Nike, yeah. you can do that. You can do that because you're Nike. You are the global leader in sportswear. Um, so just sheer size and brand recognition can allow you to do that. I would also say super nicheness can allow you to do that. Like, let's say you're solving some, especially if it's like a medical problem, like I'm solving urinary tract infections. Well, that's a niche thing. I, I, I want to solve that problem for, for myself if that's an issue I have. And so I'm going to go find the solution. And if you're one of like three solutions, I will find you. But if I'm selling a protein bar, we can't get our egos too inflated to, to the degree where we think we're so special. At some point, people will swap you out for something else. And so you need to be where people are. Like, is it such a burning issue that I need this particular protein bar? No, probably not. So is someone really going to like seek me out intensely? No. So I need to be where people are. I need to be on, and in this case, Amazon is where everyone is. So um, it's just sort of like is what it is. It's, it's a, it's a cost of doing business in my opinion. Right. Um, So what percentage of your online sales um, would you say Amazon is for you guys? The majority, the majority for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. So it's several times larger than our website. Cool. Well, um, yeah, just as we're getting ready to to wrap up here, just wanted to ask you about what's, uh, you know, what's coming up uh, uh, with, uh, with, with your company. What are you excited about for the rest of the year? You know, what do you guys have in the works? Yeah. So, so one thing we're, really excited about is the platformization of the brand. Um, and what I mean by that is moving into different categories, all with that umbrella value proposition of, you know, clean brain and body nutrition. And so we're trying to move in and, and everything has to be functional. Um, so we're moving into hydration we're, we're coming out with a product called IQ mix, which is really the first ever to our knowledge, uh, adaptogen plus electrolytes beverage. Um, Mm. it'll be just like our bars, basically next to no sugar, um, extremely low carbs. It'll be keto compliant, uh, plant-based, um, and also affordable. Um, that was a big, we had to hit, we were spending months and months and months to be able to hit a certain really approachable price point of a dollar twenty-five a stick, which is fifteen to sixteen percent lower than leading brands, so super functional, no sugar, super high quality, super approachable price point. So 
that's kind of our first foray out of, out of bars. And so, you know, if we can succeed there, we'll keep layering on new, new product lines to solve different occasions during the day um, or needs that, that you might have during the day. Yeah, that's cool. And I will definitely be a customer. That's something that, um, that my wife and I actually, we buy a different product, but we don't love it for some reasons, I guess we can, we can talk about. Um, but, uh, we actually give it to our kids in, in the summer. My kids are really active. They play a lot of sports and then, you know, I think kids in general don't drink a lot of water, you know? And so this is a, a way to keep them hydrated, especially when it gets really hot. Is the reason you don't love it is that, is that it's high in sugar? Yes. Mm. I, I know. I'm, I bet I know what brand you're talking about. <laughs> yes, that, that is it. You know, honestly, everything else about it is okay. You know, we can talk some packaging things that would make it easier to consume some of these. But, um, but yeah, the, the sugar is the big issue. All right. Well, let's just jump into the quick fire round here and, and, uh, and wrap this up. Um, I've just got four questions for you. Just tell me the first thing that, that comes to mind. Okay. Um, name one tool or resource that has helped you the most uh, in your career. I would say, re- I'll go with resource. I would say an excellent significant other. Supportive <laughs> significant other. Yeah, that's awesome. I, what I wonder is, does she, um, does she like to be called a resource? You know, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I haven't, I've never asked her that, to be honest. I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, what is uh, one book that has helped you? You've, you've named, you know, like three or four, but is there a book that you can recommend to the audience? Well, I'll, I'll give you a different book. I would have given you one of the ones I mentioned earlier, but I'll give you a different one that I just love because I think it's hilarious uh, called How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. Okay. Yeah, and it's, it's hilarious in what way? Well, it's for one, it's sort of tongue in cheek in the title. Um, he founded Maxim Magazine, which was like one. Um, I don't know if you ever read that, but like growing up, like teenage boys, like that was like that was like the thing to read when I was growing up in the early two thousands. Um, right, it was on on all the shelves everywhere. You know, it was, yeah. it was really big magazine. But like, it's not even really about that. It's just about like his founding of it. And he just has all these hilarious lessons. He's a really good writer and he's really funny, which I I always love in a business book. Um, And it's just like, it's just really good lessons. It's like, you know, he gives all these stories about how he would go to the pub and he couldn't afford a beer and all his friends who are in whatever, working at a bank could buy 10 rounds and it was just like about, it, was, it speaks to the lifestyle of like a resource strapped entrepreneur really well. Cool. Um, what's one piece of advice uh, that you would give to your 21 year old self? So I guess that was what, nine years ago? Um, yeah. 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 Kind of at the beginning of your, of your journey, you know, your professional journey, what's one piece of advice that you'd give yourself? I would say pick like, <laughs> this will sound so lame and cliched, but do what you love, like, like truly pick something. I, I think a lot of, there's a whole live to work or work to live thing. Like for me, I, I live to work. I love work. I actually think everyone would live to work if they loved what they were working on. I think it's sort of like a misnomer um, because we all work most of our lives. It sounds depressing. It's not depressing if you love what you work on. So um, pick like 
you are not trapped in your current setup. You can make the same amount of money doing something you love. It's just a, it's just a question of sort of massaging the, you know, your habits, your, um, how you're structuring your career, uh, I think. Um, so super hackneyed, but that would be what I would say. No, I like it. Um, who is uh, one person in your field of work that you, you would love to take to lunch? And I think you actually said Robert Cialdini, right? Or no, it was Seth. Um, what was his last name that you drove to meet? Oh, Seth Goldman. Oh, I've already yeah, had, yeah. I've already met him and had lunch with him. So I wouldn't be him. I would say um, this isn't even necessarily relevant to like business, but well, no, I think Tim Ferriss would be a really cool one to, to chat with. I think Joe Rogan would be another cool one to chat. I, I, I consume podcasts like constantly and I'm just, I'd probably be Tim Ferriss, honestly, because he is entrepreneurial, but he's also just interested in optimizing his life like in every aspect, nutritionally, relationship wise, business wise. So I just, I, a lot of the stuff he does and says resonates with me. So it'd probably be him. Yeah. I like Tim first too. I also like his buddy, um, uh, Kevin Rose. Have you heard much from him? Yeah, I don't consume his stuff. I, I listen to when he's talking to Tim Ferriss on Tim, the Tim Ferriss show, but I, I haven't listened to him. I, I like him too. I haven't listened to his podcast though. Yeah, it's interesting. I found actually found Tim Ferriss through Kevin Rose years ago, like before Tim was huge, you know, so huh. I, like, I, I like Tim as well. All right. And, um, you know, just just wrapping up here, if somebody wanted to connect with you or your company, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, sure. Um, eat, eatiqbar.com is our website. Eatiqbar is our handle for social media. Find me on LinkedIn. How about that? Um, yeah, but most stuff you, you can you can follow us along on, on our website and our social media. Cool, cool. Yeah, and I think we connected through through LinkedIn. Well, yep. hey, Will, this has been awesome. I think uh, it's been a great conversation with some really good sound advice. I appreciate you uh, taking the time today and jumping on the show with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Yeah, you take care. Take care. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for physical product movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, Thanks for listening.